Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Buttermilk Boulevard, the podcast that discusses discographies of your favorite bands and the artists behind them. I'm your host, James, and today we are going to discuss this discography of the band Slipknot. As always, make sure you leave a like, subscribe, and follow the podcast for more content in the future. I'm on most social medias under the handle Buttermilk Boulevard Pod. Leave me a comment, send me a message, and let me know what artists you'd like me to cover in future episodes. Now for my discography discussions, I'm by no means an expert in music, despite my musical background. So some of the things that you hear in this podcast will mostly be opinion-based and based off of what I hear in the actual music. If you do not share the same opinions, like I said, I have a social medias for that reason. If you don't agree with what I say, just reach out on some of those social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Let me know what thoughts you have about the music. How is everybody? I hope everyone is doing well. Um, well, if you're anything like me, then I know what exactly what you've been doing. You've been working all week and then slipping some slipknot <laughs> between phone calls. Um, I won't really beat around the bush on this episode. I have in the past, but we've got a lot to talk about in this episode. And as you guessed, we are talking about Slipknot for uh, because of their release of their brand new album, We Are Not Your Kind. Um, and spe- especially since you can look on pretty much any social media out there and see that Slipknot has released an album, and then they have news that's unrelated to the album, just about Slipknot in general, calling out Loudwire here. <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, that's who we'll be talking about. Um, one of the most famous metal bands in the world. And to preface this one, I do have to preface this one. This is a band that has a massive cult following out there. A lot of fans have loved this band since day one, which Slipknot refers to them as maggots. Myself, I'm kind of more of a newer Slipknot fan. I don't really consider myself a maggot by any means. Um, but when I was a young lad, <laughs> this band was everywhere. Um, but I missed the train, and it kind of left the station days ago before I even discovered this band existed. I was actually kind of just a beginner metalhead back in those days. Like I said, I was pretty—I was essentially a child, somewhat teen, um, listening to really only classic rock and metal bands like Ozzy Osbourne, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and then threw in some other classic rock bands like Rolling Stones and Guns N' Roses, etc., etc. Now, I was aware of bands like Slipknot and Korn and stuff, but... Um, I wasn't really listening to them. Um, I mean, it's kind of impossible to not be aware of their existence since they were everywhere at the time. New metal was huge in the early 2000s, but uh, I just never, I guess, gave them a chance or never really looked out for them. Um, and back then, streaming services were not nearly as big as they are now, so I didn't really have access to things like Spotify or iTunes, Apple Music, or anything like that. Um, You would have had to go out and actually physically buy these albums to listen to them. So long story short, I'm not an expert on this band, um, and a lot of these songs I've ever never actually heard up until maybe like a year ago or during this review. In fact, the first album I think I ever heard from Slipknot was All Hope Was Gone, 
And really, it was just psychosocial. And that's the only real experience that I had with Slipknot outside of maybe a year and a half ago or stuff where I started to get a little bit more heavily into this kind of metal. Now, I know the hits, essentially, like duality before I forget. But if you're a maggot and you feel free, you know, if you feel that there's anything I missed um, on a band that's as intricate and complex as Slipknot with such a rich history, then feel free to look me up on the social medias like I mentioned up top and go tell me to fuck myself. (laughs) But um, I welcome the attention anyway, so I'm okay with it. Um, So let's get this started here. Slipknot is an American heavy metal band from Des Moines, Iowa, commonly referred to as, uh, commonly referred into the new metal side of heavy metal genre. Um, that didn't make any sense grammatically, but they're new metal band. <laughs> well, I'll just put it like that. But they were founded in 1995 by Sean Carahan, referred to as uh, his side persona clown. Um, they were also founded by Joey Jordison and bassist Paul Gray. There's an I in Jordison that kind of throws me off, but I hear a lot of people pronounce it as Jordison, so I guess the I is silent. Um, not sure, but after several lineup changes, the band basically settled on nine members early on. I'll kind of go through these names, and that's pretty much all the backstory I'll talk about, but I'll go through these names and kind of their onstage persona. Because there's so many band members, they're usually seen sporting a mask. So I'll also kind of describe what that mask looks like, so maybe you kind of have an idea of who you're who I'm talking about when you look at pictures of the band or see him live or things like that. So first off, we already mentioned Sean Carahan. He's the percussionist and a backing vocalist. He's known as the pseudonym number six um, and is also known as clown because of his mask looking like that of a clown. Joey Jordson is the drummer of the band, um, normally referred to as number one. He is the the dude that you can see wearing a white mask that looks like it's bleeding or has kind of a, uh, uh, if anyone's seen the movie The Crow, you can look that up to kind of see what I mean. But the eyes are essentially blacked out with kind of looks like there are streaks down the side of his face. Uh, He would actually go on to be replaced by current and active member Jay Weinberg. He is numberless at the moment, but his current mask kind of resembles that of Paul Gray's which I'll get to, but it has a symbol of kind of like a sun, almost looks like a pentagram type of thing on his forehead. Um, But he's also seen sometimes sporting a leather type of mask with a zipper kind of for a mouth. I think that was his first mask. But next we have Paul Gray. He was the bassist um, number two, and his mask kind of resembled that of a metallic kind of gorilla or like a black mask with a gorilla, and he had the kind of like a sewn shut mouth. He would actually be replaced by Alessandro, I'm going to butcher this, Vin, Vinrella, um, Ventrella, I'm not sure, <laughs> after Gray's unfortunate passing. Alessandro does not have a number yet either, just like Jay Weinberg but wears kind of a Mayan-esque mask with kind of symbols relying uh, symbols that resemble Mayan architecture. Next up, we have Craig Jones. He is a, 
credited as being a sampler, but he's also kind of like a DJ type of uh, Tampa band member. So he's known as number five, but he also goes by 133. His mask is similar to like a gimp mask of some kind with spikes coming out of it. They're like foot-long spikes, too. So it's kind of like a, a the horror movie Pinhead in a way, um, but it's a black mask with those large spikes coming out of it. I'm sure people, just by describing that, would know exactly which Slipknot mask I'm referring to. Now, Mick Thompson is the, the guitarist in the band and known as Number 7. He has kind of like a industrial metallic style of mask with slits in his mouth, You'll know the one when you see it. It's the He's had the same mask since the beginning. Now, of course, Corey Taylor, number eight, he is the vocalist, and he has had the, the biggest changes as far as masks go. None of his masks seem to resemble the prior. A lot of the band members just change up the mask they had just slightly um, or make it a little bit more productive value or something to the mask, but... Um, again, his current, I'll just cover his current mask. His current mask is kind of like a transparent mask, um, where you can kind of see his face, but it looks like he has some blackened eyes. Like maybe he's painting over his eyes. And, uh, so, sometimes I've seen it where it looks like he has a painted across, uh, on his eyes and then the bridge of his nose type of thing. But anyway, uh, the next up is we have Sid Wilson. He's also on the turntables. He's also kind of a DJ type of band member. He's known as Number Zero, um, but he also goes by DJ Starscream. I don't know if that's specific to Slipknot, but it was noted on um, a few sites that I saw, so I'm going to mention it anyway. In the past, he's kind of worn a very gimp-like mask as well, kind of resembles a uh, gas mask in a way. Um, and the first thing I thought of when I saw his mask was the movie Hellboy. If anybody's ever seen that, there's this character that like has sand in him and he like twists a whole bunch of knobs on his chest and has a weird looking mask as well. Um, that's the first thing I thought of. His current mask is more of a skin mask, um, resembles kind of like a human face with like a hood on it but it's it's not his actual face but it's like a a mask I guess (laughs) spoiler it's a mask um but uh yeah Chris Fine or Finn is the percussionist and backing vocalist he's known as number three and was actually replaced after his firing with an unknown person, um, only really known as the Tortilla Man or the New Guy. Chris Fine's mask was, uh, again, similar to a Gimp mask. It was very leather texturing, but he had a really, really long nose that he would um, frequently jerk off, (laughs) I guess. Um, Of course, because what else do you do with a long nose? But... um, And then last but not least, we have guitarist Jim Root, Um, He's number four, and he wears a black and white kind of mask. Not really much to say about that one. Um, But there are a few members, like I said, there's a few former members I didn't cover, and then there's members that aren't active in the band since, you know, Paul Gray passed away and two of the members have since been fired uh, or left the band, depending on who you ask. So here's really the only backstory I'll cover. Supposedly the band wears these masks, as a kind of a dedication to their own music. Although it is seen sometimes as a gimmick or like a visual shock, 
It is mainly used to get people to focus on their music rather than their identity as people. The band has six studio albums, and they have one demo, which we're not covering the demo on this listen-through, especially since a lot of the band members I talked about aren't featured on that demo. They have like three or four members that were completely different on the demo. Even uh, Corey Taylor didn't come into the picture until after the demo was released. But long story short... I know that isn't even close to the amount of backstory that this band has, but I have a lot to discuss as far as the albums are concerned. Um, I'm really only here to talk about the music, so I'll touch on some stuff here and there as far as backstory of the albums, but if you feel that I missed a certain event or I should have, I'll shamelessly plug my social media again, Buttermilk Boulevard Pod, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So let's get started here. To start off this metal journey, we have the Slipknot's debut album, self-titled album, Slipknot. This album was released in 1999 by Roadrunner Records and produced by Ross Robinson. This album features the band members Corey Taylor, Mick Thompson, Jim Root, Sean Carahan, and Chris Fine, Joey Jordson and Craig Jones and Sid Wilson. And then last but not least, we have Paul Gray on the bass. A lot of those members I've already mentioned, but feels it's important for at least this album. So therefore, to start with a little history here, the band released a demo called Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat, as I mentioned. And that was released in 1996. Originally, this band featured a different lineup with Anders... Colsa Finney on vocals, Josh Brainerd on guitars, and Donnie Steele on guitars. The band was considered locally famous in their hometown of Des Moines, Iowa, and their sound would be considered uh, completely different from later records. A A lineup change and a record signing later, the band worked on their first full-fledged album release, Slipknot. The first album put the band in, into the heavy subgenre. Uh, I'm sorry, the heavy metal subgenre. Why can't I talk? Fuck! <laughs> but the heavy metal subgenre, new metal, NU metal. New metal is typically considered an alternative type of metal that um, combined elements of other genres like hip hop, alternative rock, funk, industrial, and grunge. DJs are also frequently featured in new metal bands, um, and some other bands that exist within this subgenre are Korn, Limp Biscuit, Stained, and then there's a few other bands. I think they mentioned Kid Rock. I just mentioning that up top, but I'm pretty sure if you go to the new new metal um, on, Wiki, on Wikipedia or whatever, uh, it has Kid Rock as a new metal band. <laughs> Just because he combines elements? I don't know. There's nothing metal about Kid Rock. So um, anyway, I'm just throwing that out there. But uh, there are a few new metal bands left. um, And just like with grunge, the genre would later be replaced by kind of a newer subgenre. In this case, metalcore is credited as the reason behind new metal's decline. Normally, I would not bother to go this in depth over genre. Um, but if I had to look up what the fuck new metal is, I'm assuming there's a few listeners that are uh, similarly similarly bleh, 
whatever, you're confused too. <laughs> but I've always known what bands kind of fall into this category, just never really looked up how a band is categorized as new metal. Um, there's some things that are, you know, frequently used in new metal bands. I knew the electronic stuff had to be part of it. I mean, I, I was familiar a little bit with Corn when I was younger, um, and they, they have a kind of a similar kind of, like, electronic techie sounds their music now i'm not a music historian i've covered this in a few podcasts but it is worth a note that this album featured the single weight and bleed which was actually nominated for best metal performance at the 2001 grammy awards this band has a lot of backstory and has never ever shied away from telling people about their recording process and the behind the scenes drama they have and they have a lot of drama involved in these records. Um, to date, I don't think there's a single album that Slipknot has produced that didn't have drama either in the recording process, before the recording process, or immediately after. That being said, I'm sharing my opinions. People have strong feelings on this band. Uh, if you're differing, just hit me up. But this album, spoiler alert, is really good, the album Slipknot. It easily ranks as one of the best albums this band has, um, although this will undoubtedly be a difficult discography to rank, as none of these albums are bad in the traditional sense. Slipknot has a lot going on in their songs, so it is difficult to break down every little sound and that's going on, but here I go. <laughs> um, first off, these songs are extremely intricate and feature multiple instruments. Some instruments are barely heard or just like a small scratch in the background that you wouldn't even be able to hear unless you isolated it. I'll start off with the drums here. Joey Jordison is one of the best drummers to ever drum in metal and maybe even music history. This band is well known for their percussion side of things. That being said, the drumming is actually very non-traditional. Even as far as metal is concerned, I would probably compare it to that of like a Neil Peart and Rush. Uh, only in the sense that he almost never uses a traditional beat. Now there are exceptions to this, but even if the time signature is a traditional four measure, somehow he manages to be very inventive with the rhythm. I'd probably actually categorize it as like an opposite approach, whereas most drummers have a standard beat with a hi-hat, kick, drum, and snare. They occasionally throw in that fill in between, you know, little segments that they have that opportunity to fill it in. Slipknot is kind of the opposite in the sense that the song seems to be, seems to keep the rhythm on the fills rather than the standard beat. It's used very, very sparingly on specific moments in the song as far as the standard beat is concerned. The drumming is actually very innovative. They have such a unique style that I was uh, I was watching a video on Instagram the other day, um, on silent, no less. Um, and before I knew what this young female was playing, uh, I could tell by the style of drumming that it was a Slipknot song. So he has a, Joey Jordson has a very iconic kind of drumming style. Even on drumming, the drumming is so particular, it's so precise and unique that you kind of know exactly what it is. However, Joey is not the only drummer in this band. 
While he may be the main drummer and he has a kit drum, there are actually two percussionists in this band that add a lot to that drum sound. We have Sean Carahan and Chris Fine, or Finn, and they also play percussion in this band. And when I say percussion, I mean like they play high school band percussion. <laughs> they have big bass drums that they that they stand in front of and often climb upon. <laughs> but um, but get this, they also have some kegs that surround them that you hear frequently in songs, especially the new record features that keg sound, which is really, it's like a metallic sound um, in the band that you hear every now and then. That It's like clearly a percussion sound, but... Um, it's actually quite ingenious. Um, the big bass sounds, uh, the big the big bass drum sounds that they have really add that extra little push to the sound of the instruments and the rhythm as a whole. Um, it is kind of used sparingly, and often it's difficult to tell what is the percussionist part and what is the Joey Jordison part, um, but it is absolutely essential to Slipknot's sound overall. Now, as far as the guitars are concerned, most people know that Slipknot is known for a drop B tuning. Um, I've actually found this is not 100% accurate. Sometimes they do like an A-sharp tuning, a C-sharp C tuning, or even a B-sharp tuning. Um, it depends on really the song, but yeah, drop B appears to be their kind of overall tuning that they're known for. You can really hear how low the tuning is because the guitar tone is actually very chunky and it's kind of dark. When a guitar is tuned that low, for y'all who don't know, you can actually kind of hear the twang of loose strings. The strings will actually kind of bump up against each other and against the guitar itself. In other words, the tone has a kind of bouncy quality, um, which you can kind of hear in Slipknot songs specifically. This is uh, very intentional and used to, intended to be kind of a dark, intense metal sound, um, literal metal sound. Um, the guitar has such an industrial tone to it, um, which, which goes great with kind of their like horror-like mask-wearing themes. Um, I don't know if you've been to like haunted houses or thing, but there is something about that kind of horror elements that um, seems very industrial. Um, and I feel like Slipknot really captures that kind of feel in their music. These guitars also feature really heavy guitar distortion that you can hear the screech of the feedback ever so often. My guess is they have a noise suppressor applied, but it doesn't, it's such a high distortion, such a high volume as far as the guitar is concerned, I wouldn't be surprised if they have to get an attenuator in order to kind of offset that sound because it would be difficult to pick that up if you're recording it from an amp directly. The bass is actually tuned down as well. Uh, I'm actually shocked that you can hear it at all <laughs> because as bouncy as the guitar gets when it's tuned down, the bass has kind of doubled that. Now, I'm sure they have a locking nut system and probably a Floyd Rose and all this good stuff on their guitars, but um, nonetheless, when you turn guitars that low and it's frequently used in metal, you have to get a higher gauge of string um, because otherwise, like I said, it's going to end up sounding really, really twangy or bouncy, rubbery, essentially. But 
Now, as far as the bass is concerned, I'm not 100% sure it's actually tuned to B. It sounds kind of tight to be turned, tuned to B. But the best part about this is you can actually hear the bass, which uh, for once, a metal band does not have an invisible bass sound. It's never drowned out. The mix is really well done so that the instruments can be clearly heard. Each instrument can be clearly heard. The, uh, for example, the song Prosthetics is a really good song to listen to to hear the bass kind of isolated. Usually the bass is kind of mimicking the guitar riff, and in that particular song, Prosthetics, the bassist kind of gets a chance to play around a little bit and do his own thing, and it works in the context of the song. Sometimes he's following the drum line, sometimes he's following the guitarist, but in this case he frequently gets a chance to kind of riff on his own pace. Okay, so on to the weird part. Part of what makes Slipknot a new metal band is two things. The vocals, which I'll get to, and the DJ effects or samples that they kind of throw in. Firstly, the DJ effects are not used that often, and typically they are used in the background where they are kind of barely heard, especially in later albums. The intros really feature the turntables, but I think outside of the new record, this album features kind of the most electronic effects than later albums do. In new metal fashion, a lot of these effects are record scratches, atmospheric effects, vocal cuts, or just kind of general beeps and boops that are thrown in for, you know, effect, I guess. I don't really have much to say outside of that, but um, getting to the vocals here, vocally, Corey Taylor, vocally, Corey Taylor has a unique approach to metal. I have heard in interviews before, specifically on Joe Rogan podcasts, I don't know if anyone heard the Corey Taylor episode, but he noted that he will typically layer his vocals in a song in order to add some extra clarity to the singing and the screaming that he does. I would say that instead of a growl, like with a metalcore, deathcore genre, or other metal genres, Corey sounds like he is legitimately screaming and singing at the same time. He has a very unique style that works for him and him alone, and the vocals do indeed have a quite a bit of clarity to them that most metal bands do not. It helps to know kind of also what he's singing about. You can hear the lyrics he's screaming, uh, again, unlike a lot of metal bands where the vocals kind of just phase together with the music. The vocals are also the only instrument that is not balanced with everything. I think the vocals are clearly on the forefront of these songs, and I would say that he has a very good range and is a pretty damn good singer, The vocals are also the only instrument that's not balanced with everything else in the song. For the most part, the instruments are very balanced together, but the vocals are very clearly on the forefront of these songs. And I would say that he has a very good range and is actually a pretty good singer. But what makes his performance uh, new metal is the kind of rap style of singing that he does. It's not rapping, but... Um, So don't confuse this with hip-hop or rap, but every now and then uh, he'll sing a few words and strings them together in a way, uh, and he'll say them very quickly. 
before transitioning back to a normal pace. So he'll be singing, 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 and then he'll kind of do a quick little little thing. Like this is typical. It's actually very typical in new metal. But again, Taylor very much makes this his unique style. The last little note on vocals, he will often have a call and response type of thing in his albums uh, where he will say something in kind of a secondary voice is dubbed in with kind of an, an effect of some kind. This could be a backing vocalist, but I am sure on recording they just kind of split the vocal lines instead of singing it all in one take. So I've been rambling on and on about the sound here. Um, the later records, I will not have much to mention as far as the instruments are concerned. Slipknot has a very uniform sound that carries throughout each record. There are minor changes here and there, but this is a band that knows what their sound is um, and really only changes up kind of the themes of the album and mixes up genres occasionally in future records. The tone on, like, let's say the guitar is pretty consistent throughout each album. Therefore, with this specific album, the songs are kind of hit and miss for me. None of the songs are bad, but I do think there are songs on this album that I was okay with kind of just one listen through and then moving on. I think that Slipknot's eclectic and experimental style is a little off-putting for some people, especially on a first-time listen to a band like this. This album and the next album are 100% Slipknot in their truest form. I do think that their albums are often deserving of more than one listen because they're so complex. There is so much going on in the music that it is sometimes overwhelming and actually requires a second or third listen to truly grasp what's going on. There are some songs that I started not liking that I listened to it and I'm like, you know, I'm not a fan of that. But after a few listen throughs, I was like, okay, cool. I get it. I, I like this now. I do not like all the songs despite this. Um, with songs like Tattered and Torn and Me Inside, there are songs that I just can't seem to enjoy. They're not bad. I think it is more that I just do not care or that I find them kind of boring when I listen to them. It is one that I would get to and I would be like, okay, I get it. Let's move on to the next song. Um, I think this is actually a common theme with Slipknot, whereas their biggest hits are like the first three songs of an album and then the later half of the record is just kind of bleh. It really depends on the record or the album that I'm talking about, but I do notice for at least the hits for Slipknot, they're almost always featured on the top half of the record. Um, for instance, the coolest and my favorite songs on this record are parentheses Sick, S-I-C, um, Eyeless, Wait and Bleed, and Spit It Out. Sick is the first song, Eyeless is the second, Wait and Bleed is the third, and Spit It Out, the exception, is the fifth song. <laughs> so, anyway, this album is great, and I've honestly never sat down and listened to this album in its entirety um, I've only ever really heard the hits off of this record. But that being said, I enjoyed the hell out of it. And for a first-time listener, the obvious choice would be to listen to Wait and Bleed. But if you ask me, my personal favorite tune off of this album is Sick. So that'd be my recommendation. But moving on. Are y'all ready for this shit? <laughs> okay. This album could easily, this easily be my favorite album. 
In addition, I don't think there is a Slipknot fan out there that wouldn't tell you that this is by far the heaviest record that Slipknot has done to date. The second studio album for Slipknot is a little album called Iowa. Released in 2001, it was produced by Ross Robinson again and released by Roadrunner Records. The title, if it's not obvious, is an homage to the band's home state of Iowa. It was the first album that Jim Root was heavily involved with. He had played in only a few few songs here and there on the previous album, Um, but quoting Wikipedia here, Iowa was a major success, premiering in the top tens of nine countries. Therefore, it would not be a uh, slipknot without a some sort of recording genre. <laughs> Therefore, it would not be a slipknot record without some sort of recording drama. It has been cited that the band struggled and fought a lot during the production of this album. Corey Taylor was suffering from some sort of alcohol addiction at the time. Um, in addition to that, many of the band members were noted as being involved in drugs. They were uh, under apparent pressure to release an album that had the same amount of success that the previous album did with Slipknot. Now, there's a long history of bands that become big instantly after their first or second release. And it's pretty typical that the band responds by having internal difficulties to kind of deliver to audiences and record producers. Something about instant fame also tends to kind of correlate with that substance abuse, sex, drugs, rock and roll, etc. The impression I'm kind of getting is that this was a factor when recording this album. Corey Taylor reportedly would be completely naked, vomiting and cutting himself in order to get in the zone, so to speak, to record on this album. I'm unsure if this was intentional or just a side effect of alcoholism and partying and such like that. Um, Now, the producer, Ross Robinson, was actually injured in a dirt bike accident as well. He came back to the studio the next day after being treated in the hospital. And then he went straight back to work. Why do I tell you this? Why am I reading direct from Wikipedia? Because I'm lazy. (laughs) But also because I'm trying to get in your head just how intense this album's recording process was and how intense this album ended up being. So to start, I'll note that there isn't much change tonally. Like I mentioned, a lot of the tone is pretty uniform. The guitars sound similar, drums sound similar, etc. I would really say that the only big change is that Corey appears to be screaming the entire album. The previous album had a lot of screaming, but with some kind of normal clean singing in between. Uh, this album does not. This The clean singing is used very, very sparingly, and the screaming seems to be the focal point of this. Additionally, the electronic effects and the samples that were in the previous album are very minimal, and they're actually kind of pushed more into the background of the uh, each song. <clears throat> and outside of the intro of the songs, it's really barely heard. This album particularly is a very in-your-face style of metal. The intensity of this record is absolutely insane. It is a very angry album that portrays a lot of pain. And it's really just about as simple as that. 
Funny enough, this album is actually said to be the longest Slipknot record, but to me it's always felt like it's the shortest. I know that this is, uh, it has the fewest interludes than other albums did. It actually has more music. It is possible that despite the length, it's a good album, so it feels like a breeze. Time flies when you're having fun, right? (laughs) But this album is fun, and it feels like it flies by. The album begins with a tune, a track called 515, which has people screaming, I assume in pain, and it sounds like they're screaming death repeatedly. I'm not really sure. All I know is that it sounds like they're being tortured and maybe asking for death. Um, You can let me know. However, the first song, People Equals Shit, is a nice little family tune. (laughs) Excuse my French, but it's badass. This is one of the most metal songs that I think Slipknot has. There's a few other really metal songs, which we'll get to, but arguably this is the heaviest song on the heaviest of albums. I really like Heretic Anthem as well. It is legitimately an anthem for the band. Um, Probably the song I'm looking forward to hearing the most um, play live. I'm actually seeing them in September, so that's part of another reason that I'm covering it. I'm taking my brother-in-law there for his birthday. But the chorus for this particular tune, Heretic Anthem, is like a call and answer. It's perfect for audience interaction. Corey Taylor will yell, if you're 555, and there's usually a response that says, then I'm 666. The vocals on that particular part sound like a crowd of people. I'm sure it's just backing vocals, and the rest of the band is just like, Pretending it's in a live setting, but in a live setting, it's actually the perfect response to uh, for audience participation, like I mentioned. He can yell, if you're 555, hold the mic up, and then the band will respond to him. Now, I really like the guitar from Left Behind. To me, it's one of those, it's one of those riffs that sounds extremely complicated. I didn't really try to learn it, um, So maybe a fellow guitarist out there can tell me if they had difficulty with it. But I did look up the riff, um, and it's a quick little riff that requires a lot of precision, but it's an excellent show of talent by the guitarist. It's a great, great riff. But long story short, I looked up the song after I heard it um, and tried to figure out what the guitar part. There's actually a YouTube series where Jim Root played some of the famous sound, some of the famous records, um, in kind of like a studio setting and somebody would record him, but he played this one. And Left Behind really isn't that complicated as a guitarist. Um, maybe for an easy, like a beginner guitarist, it might be difficult, but none of these riffs are really that complicated. It's a lot of like just repeating one riff on the top of the nut. But Left Behind particularly, despite it sounding complicated, is actually not that difficult. Um but anyway, it's a uh, again, it's it's a dope riff, and I recommend that you listen to it. But when I first heard that song, I will not lie, I did not have any feeling towards it. Um, but it was after multiple listens of listening that it slowly actually became my favorite tune on the record. Left again, left behind. Um, so it's one of those that I mentioned earlier that the that Slipknot has a few songs like this where if you listen to it and it's a song you've never heard before, sometimes you're like, I don't know how I feel about that. But by, you know, maybe the second or third you're listening, you're like, damn, I want to hear that song again. But anyway, I think if I continue talking about this album, um, 
I'll just be going track by track and telling you how awesome it is, but I really enjoy the hell out of this album, and if you haven't gotten the picture, uh, I really recommend that you listen to the entire album. But if you're not a metalhead, um, if you are a metalhead, then you should listen to People Equal Shit. It's definitely a huge hit for the band. But if you're a non-metalhead, maybe Left Behind or um, My Plague is probably a better song for you to start with. Next up, we have the album Volume 3, um, parenthetical, The Subliminal Verses. A lot of people just refer to it as its uh, subtitle, The Subliminal Verses, but I'll just refer to it as Volume 3 because it's a lot shorter to say. <laughs> anyway, uh, firstly, the obvious, it's a weird album title. Uh, Roadrunner Records released this album in 2004. Rick Rubin produced this album differently from the last two, and it's the only album to actually be produced by Rick Rubin. It was during this time that multiple members of the band were actually involved in other bands at this time. Um, for some reason, uh, this album, they like, they like to mention that Corey Taylor was drinking heavily during the album's production. They really, really like to nail that in for some reason. Um, he was also really involved in a reformation of the band Stone Sour, which people might be familiar. It's a very famous rock band. Um, again, people might know them, but he's the lead singer of that band as well. Generally, this album, Volume 3, has pretty positive reviews. Um, the impression I got was that the band was kind of in a lull period after their last album, where there was really nothing happening. That's why they were off doing other things. It's like um, those times where you want to chill with your friends or you want to you know, hit somebody up for dinner, um, and then they probably also want to hit you up, but everyone ends up just waiting for one another to respond, and eventually either somebody texts and you start the plan and meet up, or everyone just kind of does their own thing and nothing ever comes of it. <laughs> but this is pretty much the history of this album and how it came to be. Somebody texted and everyone met up to record an album. <laughs> so the only other thing of note is that multiple members are having quoted um, as having very little involvement from Rick Rubin as the producer he would reportedly just really show up, listen to the track, give them ideas, but other than that, he had very little involvement. Um, I do not get the impression that the band really felt one way or the other about this, but uh, maybe it depends on the member that you ask. Some people probably liked it, some people didn't, but I do know the name Rick Rubin is pretty synonymous with big, big record companies and big bands. Um, I don't know off the top of my head exactly what he's known for, but... That is a name that people have mentioned in the past for pretty famous bands. So he might be busy. Anyway, on to the album review. This album is another album that kind of deserves multiple listens. It tonally is the same as the last two, with just slightly bigger production budget maybe. It is worth noting that this is the first album to feature a... Um, acoustically driven song. It actually happens... Um, on the song Circle and Vermilion Part 2. Uh, Vermilion Part 2 is a musical remake of Vermilion, which is also featured in the same album. Very unusual to have that. Additionally, the vocals appear to be a little less 
of the scream that he's known for, and they have a little bit more clean vocals. It's actually quite a nice change of pace for the band. It does feel off as far as Slipknot is concerned up until this point. So if, you, if you're like me and you've listened to their first album, Slipknot, and then you listen to Iowa, and both those albums are heavy with heavy screaming, and then you go to volume three and he's got a tune like Circle where he's you know, singing a song acoustically. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> but um, there's still quite a bit of screaming being done, but they really lean into that clean vocal performance. There is something about this record that kind of feels commercial. Before I forget, seems like a public-friendly song, like a song that was made for commercial radio play, you know. But um, this album also reportedly didn't have a parental advisory warning either, so it's not nearly as heavy as the previous album or the first album was. Now, you don't necessarily need parental advisory to be heavy, but a lot of times people attribute heaviness to darker themes or darker lyrics or, um, I mean, cursing, of course, and swearing. But uh, this particular album did not have one, so they weren't cursing. And a lot of their themes are not really dark. They're not Satanists. They're not, you know, I don't know, killing each other or cutting somebody up. So... Uh, None of this actually hurts the album, but it is a change, and it is a noticeable change for Slipknot. Now, I still enjoyed the heck out of this album despite this. Corey Taylor is a very unique, versatile, and talented singer. Often with these metal bands, when they do a song that is soft, it's like, dude, what the fuck is this crap? But (laughs) in this case, uh, I'll give the example of Whitechapel, the first time I heard that singer actually sing clean. Um, and a lot of people might not be familiar with that band. When I heard that guy sing clean for the first time, I was like, what? That's what he sounds like. (laughs) But in this case, Corey is a great lyricist and he's a great singer and people are familiar from his stone sour stuff as well, where he has a clean vocal sound. But so these softer songs are actually just as good as a pulse pounding metal song. It also helps that the normal screaming vocals that Slipknot is known for is not as growly as most metal bands. Have you ever heard a metal song with growling vocals and then hear their normal tone of voice? I just mentioned Whitechapel, but have you ever been like, whoa, that's what they sound like, man? (laughs) But I've actually, I did that once with um, uh, Guns N' Roses, a little backstory here. Uh, whereas I listened to every album that band had to, off- had to offer. It's one of my favorite bands, if not my favorite band. And then I heard a interview with Axel, <laughs> and I was like, that dude's got a deep voice because <laughs> he has such a high-pitched yell, but we're not here to talk about that. But uh, Slipknot does not actually have this problem because you can really hear Corey Taylor's natural voice in his singing. So it's actually kind of an easy, easy transition from a heavy in your in your face to you know heavy in your face up your butt metal song to a softer <laughs> sit in a corner and cry song. Okay, so I've talked long enough on that, but back to the album. There are two major hits for Slipknot on this record: Duality and Before I Forget. 
I'm actually really curious what maggots maggots would think is actually the the song for Slipknot. Um, my favorite Slipknot song is actually in the next album, which we'll get to here shortly. But these two songs are huge. Duality and Before I Forget are gigantic. They're kind of up there with Wait and Bleed from the first record. But I'm curious which song is actually considered as Slipknot's, you know, go-to last song or their biggest hit or, you know, the song everyone's looking forward to and hoping that it's in the encore type of a thing. You know, the the big songs. But my guess is it's Before I Forget because, again, that was a little bit more commercially friendly than Duality is. Um, and it was probably a little bit more available to people and people would recognize it. But that being said, my favorite tune on the record is actually Opium of the People or uh, Pulse of the Maggots. I can't decide 100%, but those tunes are very heavy. They're very fun. So those are kind of my recommendation. Again, Opium of the People, if for nothing else, the last little breakdown of the song. And then the Pulse of the Maggots is a really good one as well. If anything, I'd actually compare the sound of this album to a little bit more of the first album. And spoiler, um, none of these albums really reach the heaviness that Iowa had, but this album is good nonetheless, and it's a great kind of of middle-of-the-road album for the band. All Hope is Gone is the fourth studio album by Slipknot. It was released in 2008 by Roadrunner Records with producer Dave Fortman. This album is largely considered experimental and a departure from the band's traditional new metal sound. Again, this album was surrounded by drama, <laughs> but it apparently depends on kind of which band member you ask. Some members of the band loved making this album because it was recorded in their home state of Iowa. Uh, specifically, I believe that Corey Taylor was mentioned that he enjoyed it because he was able to leave in the midst of recording the record to visit his family or go eat with his family or eat at popular spots probably or visit people he knew. And then he could come back to the studio and record. So it was a little bit more relaxing of an environment than, say, vomiting and cutting yourself like the prior <laughs> albums. But then again, if you ask somebody like Jim Root, He'd tell you that this was closer to a nightmare, and he actually blamed it largely on Dave Fortman's um, inability to get the band to actually work together. Now, I could see it being a problem, whereas Corey Taylor felt it was a really relaxing album to record. He might be visiting his family or going out to eat with his family, and then Jim Root's like, where is Corey? I could I could see that getting a little irritating, and it, again, it just depends on who you ask, different perspectives. But... Um, Joey Jordson, on the other hand, who would actually leave the band after production of this album, thought that Fortman, Dave Fortman, had a really good ear tone. I'm sorry, he had a really good ear for tone. He had a good ear tone, <laughs> but he had a really good ear for tone, and that this is actually the best album that they've done to date. Joey Jordson was really happy with this record. So basically, it's all over the place as far as the band is concerned. Um, and unfortunately so is the album, <laughs> but, um, of all the albums on this list, this is the album I looked forward most to listening to. Um, and is also the album that I'm least familiar with. Um, but it has my favorite Slipknot song on here, which is psychosocial. 
Yet upon listening to the whole album, I found myself um, actually pretty disappointed in the outcome. I could probably chalk this up to high expectations, but I found the experimental nature of this album a little too much. Um, there's not really much to say about this album tonally. I, I do think the album is slightly heavier than Volume 3, but not really by much. Uh, it's really just vocally. Um, there's a really good mix of kind of screams and clean vocals, but I do think there's a little bit more screaming to be had here than the previous album. Um, where I think this album actually falters is, um, is actually the riffage. Is that a word? <laughs> but um, the riffs that the guitar uses, I think they overuse the whole hammer-ons thing. Um, so the guitar, I think it's just kind of used a little excessively. The riffs are simpler um, than the previous albums, or they at least sound simpler. I mean, listen to Psychosocial. Despite it being my favorite song, nobody will disagree that is it is not the most difficult song in the world, even for Slipknot. Um, it's really just two notes. Bam, bam. <laughs> you know, it's not not really much to be had there. Um, and it's not it's not bad to have simplified riffs. I mean, we've covered bands like Alice in Chains who make simple riffs work. And this album is not bad, but it is a departure from the sound that we know from Slipknot. So it does feel a little off. Actually, I'd probably say this album is closer to kind of a modern metal album than probably any of their previous albums were. Slipknot is a band that invented their own unique style. Uh, They're not meant to be pigeonholed in a certain genre. This album is a little more traditional, kind of straightforward metal. A little bit more on the groove metal side of things. Um, And there is more melody and kind of the instrumental arrangements also. The title track, All Hope Is Gone, is legitimately a difficult riff. Um, If you look look up video, it doesn't sound difficult, but if you look up videos of Mick Thompson playing it, it is outrageously fast and difficult of a, of a riff. I'm sure it can be learned, but uh, anyway, it's funny. This album has my favorite Slipknot song, um, which I've rubbed in your face 20 times now, but it uh, ironically also has my least favorite Slipknot song. The song Wherein Lies Continues. I said that wrong. <laughs> um, the song Wherein Lies continue is awful it's one of those songs that i'm like oh no oh dear no not for me (laughs) if you like it great but i don't (laughs) it just doesn't seem to work the instruments are really all over the place in that song the arrangement is all over the place it doesn't connect or have much flow to it Uh, i'm gonna butcher this next song but i believe it's uh Gematria, <laughs> Gematria. I'm not really sure. It's it's a fun little song. You'll know it if you look at it. But uh, that that actually kind of reminds me. I haven't mentioned this, but a lot of these albums, their first track isn't a song, but an interlude uh, or an intro track, so to speak. So there's not really much singing there. Um, not really much else to say. But I think Volume Three had a song on their first track, so it's the really the only exception to this rule. Um, but this album also features a little interlude before all the music begins. Anyway, 
Gematria <laughs> and uh, Sulfur are really good songs in the vein of kind of a groovy Slipknot song. Dead Memories is also a good song as well as Vendetta. Um, I guess starting with the song, if you're looking at the track listing, starting with the song Butcher's Hook and all of the songs that follow it, I really just stopped caring and got so bored with the album. There were a couple of songs that I would like. Um, all right. I, I, I would kind of like, or I'd be like, all right, not bad, but then it's not good either. So it's just a middle of the re- middle of the road type of song, which to me, those songs are the worst. Um, Cause it, if it's a bad song, at least, you know, those middle of the road records, sometimes you're like, I could listen to that again, but a lot of times you're just like, I don't know if I care to, <laughs> you know? Um, <clears throat> my point of view has always been that if an album has, let's say 10 tracks on it and eight out of 10 of those songs are good, then to me, it's a good album. 80% of the records. Awesome. If there are only three or four tracks that are good, then I think it's probably one of those records to avoid or to save your money. Just download those tracks, those three or four tracks that are good, call it a day. In this case, All Hope is Gone is an album that has 12 tracks and about seven I enjoyed or I kept the downloads of. Um, so it's about half, it's, it's really close to exactly halfway through. It's a little better than half good, half bad. So it's a middle of the road record. It's not a terrible album. It sounds like I'm being overtly negative, but it's not a terrible album. It has a lot of good, good songs in there. But my review is essentially this. There's a lot of playing around with the sounds. There's a lot of playing around with the genres. There are a lot of playing around with the arrangements and sometimes about seven or so of the tracks that actually works in their favor. But a lot of the times that experimentation, five or so tracks, it doesn't. My biggest gripe on this record is actually the song Vermilion Part 2, which I've actually, you may have remember me mentioning that earlier. Volume 3, or Subliminal Verses, literally had two versions of Vermilion. <laughs> why is my time being wasted with a third version of this damn song? It's a good song, but I think I've had enough of it. (laughs) I had enough of it in the last record. If the band just really loves the shit out of that song, awesome. Um, But also, of the three versions, this version and All Hope Is Gone is actually my least favorite. It sounds like they really just changed the arrangement in favor of an orchestra, but kept the same vocal line from the second version in volume three. In other words, it sounds like they didn't even, Corey Taylor probably didn't even track another vocal line for it. They just changed the music. But here's a recommendation that I have for some of y'all non-metal fans. The song Snuff. It's a great soft piece that really, really, really shows off Corey's vocal chops outside of the metal screams. I've actually seen... I haven't seen him live do this, but I've seen a few videos out there on YouTube where he will play this song acoustically and it a hundred percent works as an acoustic song and it works in the context of this album. It's a very, very good soft song, not in the vein of Slipknot, but it's a good kind of piece to listen to, especially if you're a non-metal head. Otherwise go listen to psychosocial. 
Um, I think a non-metal head is guaranteed to be head bobbing along with this tune. It's a good track. It's a good record. I mean, it's always on those try not to headbed headbang records or headbed. <laughs> try not to headbed. <laughs> anyway, it's a good tune. Um, it's always on those headbang try not to headbang challenges on YouTube that you know. Anyway, it's just it's just a middle of the road record. It wasn't my favorite one. I don't think it's bad, but if I had to rank these albums, it's probably the last record. Um anyway, luckily not all hope was gone for the future of Slipknot. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> but I'm awesome. Uh <laughs> The next album in the lineup is 0.5, semicolon, The Gray Chapter. I'm, I'm probably just going to refer to it as The Gray Chapter from now on. This is the fifth studio album by Slipknot, released in 2014 by Roadrunner Records and produced by Greg Fiddleman, I believe is how it's pronounced. Now, we really can't go any further without noting a couple of things. First off, right off the bat, one of the founding members, Paul Gray, the bassist, tragically passed away prior to recording this album due to drug overdose in 2010. The title of this album, The Gray Chapter, is actually a tribute to Gray and his legacy with the band. Um, Secondly, Joey Jordson, the drummer, would actually be fired or quit um, in 2013. The reason for his leaving is actually unclear, but Jordison swears that he was fired while the band says the opposite, that he was, he quit. Later in 2016, Jordison made a statement informing the public that he had suffered from a, what's called a transverse myelitis. Uh, It's essentially a fancy word for a neurological issue that affected his ability to play. Um, we could probably cover Jordison's career alone in a podcast by itself. <clears throat> His drumming resume has him playing with bands like Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne, Rob Zombie, The Pusifier, and many, many, many other metal acts. It goes without saying that losing these two left some pretty, pretty big shoes to fill. Now, credited on this album for bass has the likes of Jim Root, the guitarist for the band, Alessandro Vignorella, I believe is how you say it, uh, who played only on really a few unknown tracks, but would actually go on to be the main bassist, replacing Gray overall. And uh, also playing the bass was Slipknot's original guitarist, Donnie Steele, who was really only in the demo that I mentioned early on. In other words, they didn't really have a single basis for the Gray Chapter. Um, Slipknot would actually fill the shoes of Joey Jordison by hiring Jay Weinberg, who would, just like Alessandro, be the main drummer for the band um, from this album onward. Here's actually an interesting little fun fact, Um, And hopefully this information is accurate, but according to the internet, uh, Jay Weinberg is actually the son of Max Weinberg, who's the drummer of the Bruce Springsteen band. Uh, There's some sort of backstory there where Max Weinberg, you know, introduced Jay to them. Jay was a big fan of Slipknot um, and something just clicked, I guess, with the band. And it's one of those, you know, fun little stories that, you know, 
people look up to. But anyway, um, I really enjoy this album, The Grey Chapter. That is actually, surprisingly, a controversial opinion um, and a topic of much debate. From what I gather by reading the articles online, this album is very often put towards the bottom when it's ranked amongst the Slipknot records. Even though, generally speaking, it was very well received, but several critic reviews actually cited this record as embellishing both Slipknot's strengths, but also their weaknesses. I personally really enjoyed this record. If anyone listened to my review on Sepultura, you'll figure out one thing about my taste in metal. I'm a sucker for a good groove. So by default, I guess I am technically a fan of groove metal, but I'm not sure that's necessarily, I should be pigeonholed in that. But anyway, um, this album is still a, it's a bit of de- a departure from their new metal sound, just like the last album was. Um, I think it harnesses the sound in some songs, that new metal sound. I think it's featured in some songs, but this album really has a lot more groove and melody to it than previous albums did. It's not a groove metal album, um, but nonetheless, it does have groove. I think this actually makes Slipknot fans scared. Um, It's a little more commercialized metal. I agree with that, but it doesn't match really the harshness of of Iowa or the Slipknot, Slipknot songs that people are craving from the band. I think that putting Slipknot in the category or a subgenre really isn't fair to the band. This is a pretty versatile group of musicians that are talented in multiple arts of metal. They could probably put out a decent thrash album, a decent metal album, uh, a death metal album, black metal album, hell, probably even symphonic metal if they really wanted to, but... This album is a good representation of that. Um, This album tonally isn't much different from prior albums. I think the guitars are pretty much the same tone, so are the drums, etc., etc. This album is actually a, um, despite having a new bassist and drummer, these guys are every bit as capable as the previous members of Slipknot were. I know they were big shoes to fill, and a lot of people are like, you know, I miss Jordison, but... Jay Weinberg is a very, very capable drummer, and I guess you would have to be in order to play some of those songs that Jordison could play. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it'd be 100% impossible to fill the shoes of Gray and Jordison, but these new guys bring a new kind of charisma and a unique style that is different from the previous albums. For instance, The Devil and I is an awesome tune, probably my favorite on the record, But where it really shines is actually the drumming. The drumming has a groove to it, and it really brings out the melody of the guitar riffs that Mick and Jim are playing. This album has a lot to offer. If you want a more traditional Slipknot song, Sarcastifier and AOV are perfect tunes for that exact reason. I also really like the song Custer, personally. Um, but then there's songs like Kill Pop and The Devil and I, which are personal favorites of mine. This al- album also features one of my favorite Slipknot songs, period, which is the negative one, which is a hell of a metal tune. I think for the most part, I think Slipknot fans like this album. 
but I but probably admit that it is different from the previous albums, which I can actually agree with. It is pretty different from prior albums, um, and it's in certain degrees it doesn't really feel like Slipknot. But nonetheless, it is a genuinely good album with genuinely good music. Um, and if you haven't heard this record, I do recommend you check it out. I don't have really much else to say about it. Um, essentially, when you look up this album, really all that people talk about is the passing of Paul Gray, which is very unfortunate and it's a tragic event. But um, not many people have much to say about this album as far as the music is concerned, and I do think the music is pretty damn impressive for what it is even if it doesn't sound like 100% the Slipknot that people know and love. But, okay, so we've reached the part of the discography that I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this were waiting for. It took a little while to get here. This is probably one of my longer podcasts, but trust me, it was worth the journey. This band is huge, and there's a lot to cover. And that being said, we have the newest album, We Are Not Your Kind, We Are Not Your Kind is the sixth studio album by the band Slipknot. This album was released last weekend on August 9th of 2019 by Roadrunner Records (laughs) with producer Greg Fiddleman again. After the previous album, the band took a five-year break. The percussionist Sean Clown Carahan Um, And Jim Root actually began writing songs in early 2017. Reportedly, there were a uh, total of 22 songs and about 26 interludes. And their plan was actually to release a double album for Slipknot. Somewhere along the line, this actually changed and they began to work on this album, which only features about 14 tracks. Before the recording would begin, Chris Fine, or Finn, would actually be fired from the band. Slipknot has been in the news for months, and I'm sure many people know the story. I don't really care to discuss it here because, honestly, I don't have a very valid or good opinion about it. But long story short, the band found itself needing a new percussionist. They hired somebody. (laughs) Um, At the point of this recording... Nobody knows who the new percussionist is, but he is only known in the media as either the new guy or Tortilla Man (laughs) because of the style of mask he wears, I guess. Um, It it does vaguely look like a tortilla with eyes cut in it, but, (laughs) you know, whatever. Um, This album is actually named after a lyric in a song called All Out Life which is a single the band released in April of 2019 to build up some hype for the upcoming album. Despite the hype and how amazing that song is, it actually ended up not being featured on this album. Um, My guess is that since Chris Finn was featured on All Out Night Life and helped in its recording, the band probably chose not to feature it for that reason. Although their public statement was that it didn't fit in the story they were trying to tell in the album, which might actually be the case. I could, I could see it fitting in there um, a little awkwardly. So that's about all the backstory there is at the moment. Um, it was announced on Friday when I recorded this that the album actually became number one in the UK charts. I'm sure if it hasn't already been, 
It is pretty damn close to number one in the U.S. as well, but usually they don't release those charts until the following Monday after the debut week has come. Okay, so this album is a beast. Um, It's not a particularly heavy album. I'm pretty sure they promised Iowa level of heaviness when they were promoting this record. However, um, this album is amazing nonetheless. I know it has been pretty divisive thus far with fans of the band, but I, I, I legitimately cannot stop listening to this record. It feels a little bit more melodic than the previous albums were. Overall, the instrumentation is a lot, um, a lot more cleaner, but sounds pretty similar to prior albums, tonally speaking, of course. They've actually added a lot more electronic effects on this album as well, a lot more. For a while, you could barely even notice the electronic effects in some of the previous albums, but they've really gone overboard with this one. Um, almost every song has a small interlude before it starts uh, with some electronic effects. But a lot of the interludes that they feature, some of the interludes are their own tracks, and they are similar, similar enough to an actual song that it is kind of forgiven. Um, for instance, Death Becomes of Death is essentially an interlude, um, but there's actually singing in it, and it's about a minute and a half, so you can kind of take it in either way. Is it a song? Is it an interlude? I'll let you decide. But they also utilize these effects to kind of build a horror type of atmosphere in this one. Specifically, that kind of industrial horror that I mentioned earlier, I think this album does a pretty good job of mimicking the sounds that you would recognize from like a horror movie or something like that. Uh, Probably more in the aesthetic of like demonic possession or church type of horror, things like that. Um, But anyway... There is a theme here. I don't know what the theme is, but I do know that this album feels like a story. The first song is called Insert Coin, I guess the first track. It's really just an interlude before they play the song Unsainted, which is a really big hit for the band. The final track is called Solway Firth. That Both of those tracks, in case anybody didn't notice this, feature the same type of same lyric. But both those songs feature the same lyric, I'm counting on the killers. I wonder if anyone's actually recognized that yet. I'm sure people have, but Insert Coin really just uses it once where he's just kind of like, I'm counting on the killers and then unsainted plays. And Solway Firth, it's actually used as a major lyric. So they are, it flows very well. The They are telling a story, or at least it feels like they're telling a story in this album. I, I don't know what it is. I haven't really looked up the the actual lyrics for these, so I'm sure there is one, though. Uh, I'm sure this band is not shy, so I'm sure somebody will ask them and they'll tell them. But I've never felt that Slipknot was doing anything just because people wanted them to. Um, with albums like Volume 3 and All Hope is Gone, there were times I thought, did they just throw in this song just to appease fans? But I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure they did not. Uh, This album has a lot of care behind it. You can really hear the inspiration behind these songs. Um, And after years of doing their own things, the band got together and put together an album with very little pressure to do so. They'd been on a hiatus for like five years. They had no reason to put together an album, but they chose to put together an album. 
maybe that time apart from each other actually did them better than expected, but musically, this is a superior album than the prior records. I don't think this is the best album that they have, but the arrangements and the songwriting is a little a little bit more professional, a little bit more experienced. Now, that implies that the other albums were not professional or experienced, but look, I, y'all can figure out kind of what I'm saying here. Uh, this is a very mature album for Slipknot. They're, they have matured a lot as musicians and as a band as a whole. Um, and if this album is a reflection of their sound going forward, I actually really look forward to more of their music in the future. Now, the track Unsainted was their single off of the record, and for the most part, Solway Firth was, uh, would follow shortly after, after Unsainted's release. But overall, the songs have much better arrangements than the previous albums, in my humble opinion. Um, this is much softer of a record, and I bet people hear a song off this record in 10 years that people will be like, is that Slipknot? <laughs> but right now, everyone knows it's Slipknot, but it doesn't sound like them. I'll admit that. Um, they really favor a softer tone in this album, despite their promises of it being a heavy album. Um, Corey Taylor uses a lot more clean vocals in this tune. There's plenty of screaming to go around. I really, what I enjoy is if they use the cleaner side of Taylor's vocals, I would prefer that they stick to it. So like a song like Snuff, there's no screaming in that. That's what I like. And then this album, I think they do that. So if they use the screaming, do the screaming the whole time. Um, or if they do a clean vocal line in a screaming song, use it as a chorus. Um, but don't switch back and forth. Otherwise, people get thrown off or they get confused. So anyway, um, often in this one, they feature a choir-like sound, probably used with backing vocals, but in the song Unsainted, you can actually hear an actual choir in that song for the chorus line and then the intro. Now, with Corey's vocal performance, I will note, even his scream is a lot cleaner and clearer than prior albums. I read somewhere, but for the life of me, I couldn't find out where that article was, but somewhere it said Corey Taylor had stopped smoking, which actually probably helped his vocal tone as well. Um, and it's probably lends to why this album, his scream seems a little bit more clear. The mix is very well done as well. I mean, we're in 2019. A lot of the mixing softwares and stuff have a lot better quality and abilities than they did when this band's first start. But that being said, again, this is an album that I found very difficult to stay away from. Even I, when it came out, I listened to it pretty much immediately. I downloaded it immediately. I was looking forward to it because, I, again, I'm familiar with Slipknot, but really only for about a year and a half or two years have I started to actually give this band a real good listen to. Um, now, We Are Not Your Kind, When that I've been actually excited for that. I've been probably just as hyped up as a normal Slipknot fan would be, and I downloaded it right away. Um, I actually, like I said, I'm planning on seeing them live in September with my brother-in-law. So um, 
I'm looking forward to seeing them live. I've never seen them live before, and it should be an experience. I'm also looking forward to seeing Gojira, which is my favorite metal band. But anyway, <laughs> um, so this album was difficult to stay away from. And a lot of times um, when I listen to discographies, I will listen to the like first album. I'll listen to the whole entirety of the first album on a playthrough, and then I'll re-listen to it again and analyze kind of each individual song. And then maybe I'll listen to it a third or fourth time. But I really only like to do one album a day. I don't like to do multiple albums because it kind of throws off um, what I listen to. But with this album review, it was really difficult to stay away from this album. (laughs) We Are Not Your Kind. I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do. Um, And there's a lot of songs that I enjoy that were not necessarily featured on release, like Orphan. I think Orphan is a really good slipknot style of song um, and a lot of people quote Solway Firth as being their slipknot style song but I really enjoy Orphan I think it's a pretty heavy track that kind of resembles that Iowa era not close but resembles it but a lot of times I'd listen to the first album or the second Iowa or Slipknot and I'd find myself like okay you know I listened to that album time to listen to the new one <laughs> so I guess Technically, I'm most familiar with this album. So (laughs) by this point, it's only been a week. Um, But it's a really good track. Uh, Hopefully other people enjoy it as much as I did. I know, like I said, it's divisive. Some Slipknot fans think it sucks, and then other people think it's awesome. I think it's a great addition to this discography. It's a very mature sound for the band. um, And going forward, it's going to be great for their overall sound. But... Enough of my ranting and raving. That's about it, guys, today. Um, I know this was a longer podcast than normal. Uh, I think I'm going to start probably updating my discography reviews to be maybe every two weeks or week. It depends on what I'm covering. This band only has six albums, and it's been my longest podcast thus far. I mean, hell, I covered a 33 albums with Elton John, but managed to keep it at an hour. <laughs> so that could just tells you kind of what... Uh, how big of an impact Slipknot has as a band and as a metal band. But just in general, Slipknot is a gigantic band that deserves a lot of respect. And they're not necessarily for everybody. I, I completely understand that when somebody says, you know, I can't really get into Slipknot, I get it. They are an eclectic type of metal band as well. That might offend people, but, you know, fuck it. <laughs> um, they... They are an eclectic metal band. They are not a traditional sounding metal band. And I don't think even, you know, their biggest fans, the Maggots, I don't think they could argue that. That this band, when you first heard them, you probably had the same reaction. Okay, that's different. Okay. (laughs) I like that. Okay. (laughs) But you kind of get what I mean, where they're not a traditional type of band, but they are a large band and they have a lot of really good, unique music. Nobody would ever sue Slipknot for saying that their music sounds like another band. It would probably be the other way around. (laughs) But um, they invented a sound, and that's very unique in modern times. For a long time, people were probably thinking, has all the songs been written? Has everything been done already? You know, have have all the sounds been discovered? I mean, I used to think Rage Against the Machine were really, you know, inspirational because they changed the sound. And then you hear bands like Slipknot and they're very unique sounding as well and use multiple instruments like percussionists and stuff. And it's just 
now you hear it everywhere and it's just like, uh, what else, what's left to do? What, what can you do? But, but there are bands that do different things. Like, um, I've mentioned in the past, I'm a fan of periphery, which I might do a discography on eventually. I haven't gotten to it yet, but their new album is outrageously awesome. And there's bands like born of Osiris, another metal band that really just like changes the, the format of gent metal. But I'm just ranting now. Just know that Slipknot's a huge band, and I enjoyed the hell out of this this uh, discography review. Uh, and I'm glad I listened to some of these albums that I were unfamiliar with, like their first album, and then All Hope Is Gone were my um, the albums that I was most unfamiliar with. But this new album's a good addition to it, and um, hopefully y'all enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed listening to the discography. Let me know your thoughts on Slipknot. As always, just to leave y'all off, I do have a Spotify playlist. It's called Buttermilk Boulevard, and you can look that up on Spotify. It's a free playlist. doesn't cost y'all anything. Um, Spotify might cost y'all things, but I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the uh, I'm going to update it with some Slipknot records, some of the tunes I talked about, and you can check those out and kind of listen along as you... Uh, kind of know what I'm talking about when I uh, talk about each individual song and I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I'm not making any sense, <laughs> but listen here, motherfuckers. <laughs> so, uh, I appreciate y'all listening as always, uh, hit me up on social media. Let me know what you feel about s- certain bands or, you know, Slipknot specifically. If you want to talk about Slipknot, I'll talk about it all day with you. But if you uh, are interested in me dis- doing a discography of a different band, you know, let me know. I'm on most social, most podcast sites that you can follow the podcast on. And But long story short, I appreciate y'all listening. Um, I should be back next week with a new episode, but uh, if all goes well, maybe I'll be back next week. But I think the next big band that I'm planning on is... Um, well, I don't want to tell y'all yet. So <laughs> I hope uh, I hope y'all enjoy the podcast. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate the support and y'all take care. Rock on. Yeah.